What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special repeat guest, Allie Miller, who is probably, I don't know, I think I think you deserve the title of one of the most knowledgeable nutrition experts that I know of anyways. Well, how are you, Allie? I'm doing awesome. I'm so stoked to be back on. Yes, I'm glad to have you. Glad to have you. Last time we kind of dove into a little bit of your background and then we talked, because um, you've been working with my wife, Crystal, and I, I don't remember, we, we didn't have a three-way podcast, right? Like she wasn't on the last podcast, no. I don't think. No, it was just you and I. I think it was right after, not KetoCon 2019, but KetoCon 2018. And we had just met briefly there and uh, we just talked more about, you know, my journey to keto how I practice functional integrative medicine, and then kind of my whole food approach. And I was just coming out with the anti-anxiety diet book at that time. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that we just had met for the first time. And we've had a glass of wine together since then. We've, we've, we're, we're friends now. Yes, yes. I mean, heck, I'm influencing Crystal's hormones, so I'm like a part of the family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shoot, that, that grandfather's you in for sure. Um, well, let's, I don't want to dive too much into your, like what, like your beginning stories per se, because I feel like we kind of went over that in depth with the first podcast, but I really want to dive into what you have coming and then just some of the things that you've learned, some of the pivotal things that you've learned since then, since the last podcast, because I'm assuming in the nutrition space, uh, like in your specific area, there's always something that you thought was going to go one way and then something just totally through a curveball at you and took you down left field. So what are some things that that you're working on now as far as the, the anti-anxiety goes and your new book coming out? We can kind of allude to that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if you're not growing and changing and learning, then you should not be a leader. <laughs> totally. You know, uh, ego is quite powerful, but uh, I, I love to be humbled on a daily basis. <laughs> so I'm, I'm all on board for that. And I think it's a constant evolution. So uh, yeah, you know, I've been practicing functional integrative medicine for over 11 years now, and I'm a registered dietitian. And yes, we cover all that backstory. But what happened about two and a half years ago, when I had just had my daughter, is as I was getting back into clinic, I was having a different perspective. My hormones were resetting postpartum. And I had this kind of light switch go off in my head of with functional medicine, you know, we're seeking the root cause of chronic conditions. So we're asking why. And I really kind of call myself like the detective of the body when I'm working with patients. And I had this moment where I was like, you know, whether I'm treating leaky gut, whether I'm treating hormone imbalance, whether I'm treating uh, detoxification issues or metabolic dysfunction, if stress isn't addressed and if the individual is running on fight or flight mode or dealing with chronic anxiety, that that will be their Achilles heel to their healing process or their wellness process. So I felt really compelled to put together the science and strategy of the systems of our body and how our gut integrity, our inflammatory process, our adrenals, our neurotransmitters, and our microbiome all intertwine with the experience of the individual on a daily basis and how their relationship with their you know day-to-day -day function on a perspective level, positivity, negative thought process, emotional, mental stress, and physiological stress can keep the person hardwired for that stress response. I love it. I love it. I feel like this is I feel like this is kind of like next level nutrition 
because <laughs> so many people, you know, they, they modify and tweak their diet. They'll, you know, cut out one food group and add another or whatever, but they don't really start diving deeper into, you know, stress, parasympathetic, sympathetic, you know, gut microbiome, hormones until they kind of, you know, get to that, that 2.0 level, so to speak. So I'm For glad sure. that you can kind of just flush this out because I feel like, you know, keto has grown in popularity tremendously over the past several years, but a lot of the people that are that are in it now have been in it for a solid chunk of time, and that, these are the kind of questions that they're wanting to get answered. So I'm glad you're here to shed some light on that for us. Happy to do it. And yeah, so I mean, I put out that book in 2018, and I got really amazing results and feedback from listeners that were able to just improve their day-to-day function, um, experience cognitive clarity, see more gains with their workout and body composition change, hormone balance, but they were looking for more. There was still some confusion on, well, what about kids? How do we feed our kids? Does that work? Uh, you know, what's the deal with this leptin thing that you keep talking about, Allie? And give us more application. And so the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook comes out uh, at the end of September, and that's going to really be the application of all of this. So more of the the what, whereas the Anti-Anxiety Diet is the why. Do you find in making a, an application style book, it was you kept running into roadblocks with regard to there's so many different things that apply differently for different people because we're all individualized. So was it hard to kind of come up with some basic pillars or how do you structure it? I guess it's a good question. Yeah. So like on a keto approach, I have three phases that I use and I, I, I believe same thing, you know, it's, <laughs> it's sexier if you could just say, this is the way and you should all follow this and it's going to work for you and just shut up and white knuckle it until it works <laughs> because that'd be awesome. Right. But I mean, being a practitioner and seeing how we're all biochemically unique and how we're constantly changing, we have to be able to have more of like a pendulum swing effect of different phases and approaches that are going to work for different seasons, uh, for different status of our life, different demands in our life. So I have like a classic keto approach, which is phase one, where it's, you know, less than 30 total grams of carbs and definitely highest macros coming from fat and moderate protein. Then I have a phase 1.5, which is pretty much where I live. Uh, 1.5 really harnesses the concept of metabolic flexibility, but most people still are able to thrive ketogenic in this state. So this may liberalize carbs upwards of 45 to 60 total grams a day, not net. And um, then I have a phase two where individuals might decide they need a low glycemic approach to the diet. uh, And this is where protein levels are going to go up, fat's going to come down a little bit, and the carbs liberalize a little bit further. And so I try to give my reader and my followers a perspective of, you know, food is information, and there's no on or off switch of what is right or wrong. It's about listening to the whispers or the feedback of our body, watching our performance, watching our digestive function, our sleep patterns. And as we adjust and modify, just collecting that qualitative information and then assigning value to it, not value that you or I give them because it works for us, but value from what their body's doing in response to that dietary change. I love it. I feel like the whole concept of it being like a pendulum swing is key because that's that's something that I try to incorporate with my caloric manipulations. And I recommend for my clients, like people just want to stick with one thing indefinitely. And I feel like that's yes. incredibly taxing on the body and the mind. But if you have like a like a like a phase in which you're you're going from one, not necessarily extreme to the other, but just kind of giving your body a variation 
and what your inputs are, you're going to get a much more of a response than if you just, like you say, white knuckle it, you know, till the death with one set of thinking. Yes, absolutely. So what about the the phases that you've got mapped out here? Is there like an average length of time in each phase or is that totally based off of the outcome of the individual as they're going through it? Like how does that structure? So I give them signs and symptoms and I, there's kind of more qualitative, I guess, uh, criteria, if you will, of who would fit where. So for instance, I, I only would put children in phase one if they're dealing with a neurological condition like epilepsy uh, and or if they have a genetic mutation um, on a you know receptor or influence on glucose metabolism. Otherwise, I'm going to put children who, again, they're not entering this equation likely as metabolically handicapped <laughs> as adults who have been eating you know garbage for years and a bunch of processed products. Most children are going to have a lot more glucose sensitivity, and they're pretty highly active. So you know that's like a qualifying uh, variable that I'll say, okay, kids should start at a 1.5 or a phase two. Uh, other things we look at is, you know, how much body fat do you have? Are you dealing with hormone imbalance? Um, but generally speaking, I start everyone at phase one and I keep them there unless they're really, really high carb, like standard American diet. I might wean them into phase one then, you know, the mm -hmm. reverse, <laughs> like wean it off, wearing it out. But most people I keep in phase one, a minimum of eight to 12 weeks so that they can really get fat adapted. And then they can start to kind of tweak and play with what's their metabolic flexibility. And, you know, I use the ketogenic diet with this anti-anxiety approach because ketones cross the blood-brain barrier. So ketones have a really unique ability to not only reduce oxidative stress in the brain, which means that your neurons and your neurotransmitters fire more rapid and more accurately, but you also are going to get a favorable influence on GABA, which is an inhibitory mellowing out compound for the brain. So my goal is to get you all to experience the magic of nutritional ketosis and then still finding balance in your body so that you feel you have a sustainable approach with food freedom. You're still getting qualitative foods to support the microbiome. And this can really become a lifestyle to thrive in. Do you feel that... Um like a standard ketogenic approach that would be illustrated in phase one is not optimal from a gut microbiome standpoint. If you're taking in that few of, you know, carbs and fibrous vegetables, are you going to be harming the gut microbiome in your opinion at all? So I, I think that's very controversial. Uh, I, I really don't think that we have enough evidence-based research to state yes or no. I think that it takes into account the individual's stress because stress is a sterilizer to the microbiome. So if someone is pretty chill um, mentally, like pretty mentally harnessed <laughs> and is able to harness the wild stallion of the brain, if you will, and is respecting their body, eating enough calories, really important as well, then they can likely still have favorable microbiome activity. There's foods like collagen, you know, the, the bovine hide or whatever the, the collagen source is derived from being very sticky and kind of adhesive. Not only does that support the gut integrity and the gut lining, but likely that also does provide some fuel source to our gut bacteria. And I do find that with a whole foods keto approach, incorporation of leafy greens, chia seed, that there still is a lot of sources of uh, prebiotic fibers for the biome to thrive on. So I wouldn't say with 
definity that, you know, a, a tight keto carbo uh, carbohydrate restricted diet is going to hinder your microbiome. But for those that are prone towards high stress demands and sterility, they may need to take probiotic supplementation or strategically incorporate probiotic rich foods, which I really think all of us should do as an insurance policy anyway, truly. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting. If you look at the the keto community as a whole, I feel like we've had this pretty stark shift away from, you know, leafy greens. I mean, it's, it's like we've mm -hmm. been lied to for so long about carbs and, you know, fibers and grains being optimal that we've kind of like swung so far the other end. And it's like, okay, we don't want to listen to anything. Any, you know, medical advice tells us so we don't want any vegetables or any greens. And I don't really know where I stand that like, I personally don't consume that many vegetables, that many greens, but I don't, villainize it like I feel like a lot of people in the space do. I think that's just a, that's not necessarily a healthy outlook towards greens either. Sure. And again, it's kind of each to their own. So I use like a carnivore approach clinically for people that have really severe gut dysfunction and are dealing with really severe gut damage. Because I mean, point blank, there are not anti-nutrients in meats, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that. And you can get really therapeutic foods. For instance, I might kick someone off with a five-day bone broth fast uh, if they're dealing with really severe leaky gut, because I just want to rest their gut and just bathe it in L-glutamine and gelatin, you know, the gelatin that's in there as well. And that's really giving it like a facelift to the gut, really sealing and protecting the tissue. And then I'll ease them into always first animal proteins and fish. And um, then we kind of expand from there using more of an elimination diet approach of how that individual responds. But right, I think that there's a lot of um, demonization isn't the word. I can't think of the word, but this this intensity of opinions of, of this staunch on off switch, I guess, <laughs> of like vegetables are good, vegetables are bad. I think we need to take a more uh, broad perspective of, yes, they're most harmful for those who are talking about lectins and other anti-nutrients like oxalates and what have you, right? Um, you know, these are most harmful for individuals that don't have ample stomach acid, that have gut distress. Um, and so it really is so individualized. And if we support the systems and the function of the body ancestrally, you know, we do see that many populations ate twigs and, and some form of vegetation, even if they were doing a high animal diet. Right, right. What about like raw vegetables versus, you know, fermented vegetables? Is there like a preference by the body? I know the fermented vegetables probably get broken down and absorbed a little bit easier. Is there anything that you're missing out by gravitating towards that as opposed to raw? Oh, no. I, I mean, fermented is going to be the best. You're actually taking something that was already pretty nutrient dense and optimizing it because you're going to get more benefit to butyrate, which is a marker. You know, we think of BHB from ketones, right? Beta-hydroxybutyrate. Well, you also make butyrate in the colon and in the presence of good balanced gut bacteria. And this aids in the fermentation process. So we're going to be getting the I3Cs, for instance, like Eindol-3-carbonyls. These are in the sulfur-containing plants, like your cabbage, your Brussels sprouts, your cauliflower, your broccoli. If you were to eat those foods raw, you actually can have some harmful impact, like goitrogen influence, which that means basically that the, some of the plant particles can interfere with the way that the thyroid works. So I would not recommend doing a lot of like 
raw cabbage slaw, you know, and things like that on a daily basis or throwing raw kale into your, your protein shake or whatnot. But um, adding acid and fat, if you're to do them raw, would actually enhance the nutrient absorption and denature some of those anti-nutrients. So like massaging, mechanically breaking down that cabbage with your hands, right? Or um, starting the process of adding acid from lemon or uh, raw apple cider vinegar, that's going to boost the hydrochloric acid in the stomach which is going to enhance the absorbability and reduce the impact of the anti-nutrient. And then when you add in good bacteria and you culture it, that just takes things totally like 3.0 level where you're going to create this synergy in the body where you're upregulating your production of serotonin and GABA because of the lactobacillus and bifido strains that are present in those pickled or fermented vegetables. Is there anything that you need to watch out for? Like if someone's looking for, you know, pickled fermented foods and they're looking at the nutrition labels, is there any kind of brine or pickling agent that people should try and steer clear from? Well, you want to make sure, of course, if you're buying pickles at the grocery store, pickled vegetables, that they're not shelf stable because that's going to be pasteurized. So if you're buying your pickles from the middle of the grocery store, not only may that have like, you know, yellow number whatever and food colorants and dyes and um, sulfites as preservatives, so that would not be favorable, then you're also going to have it pasteurized. So it's not go- that that itself is going to kill off the good beneficial bacteria. And you want to be mindful if you're eating pickled vegetables that they're not vinegar cultured, which isn't in itself bad. It's just that that's not going to provide you that that pro-bacteria. Um, so you want something that's refrigerated. And ideally, they are just creating that from the lactic acid of the plant, if we're talking about fermented vegetables. So there shouldn't be added culture. It should just be, you know, the breakdown of that vegetable with a pH change by creating a brine from the salt. And using a quality salt is important because if you're just talking like iodized table salt, that, you know, NaCl and sodium chloride, chemically created salt is very different than, you know, a whole food salt or a salt that is derived from sea salt. Gotcha. What about like uh, yogurts and stuff like that? So yogurts that we get at the grocery store, at least if if we don't have access to raw milk, let's say, um, because a lot of the states don't, if you don't have access to raw milk, then this is going to be pasteurized dairy that then is inoculated with a pro-bacteria culture. And that's fine. Um, You know, I do look at higher amounts of the lactobacillus as beneficial. And um, there are some companies that will actually identify the strain, which I always think is is of benefit. But the gold standard and getting back to more of an ancestral approach would be doing like a kefir or a yogurt from raw milk where it's actually just cultured, you know, and, and hasn't been killed and then re-inoculated with an ad of basically a probiotic supplement in there. This is all really fascinating because I've, I've been kind of, <laughs> I, I went through this kombucha kick and I was trying to, you know, experiment with all these different strains of kombucha. And then I, I had some kind of weird, uh, I guess, allergic reaction to it. And I started breaking out like red splotches all over my face and I'd be itchy and like heat waves. I don't know why, but some kind of sensitivity or whatever's in there. But I was diving deep into the fermentation process, how all this stuff is made. And I feel like a lot of people are kind of steer away from it initially because of the sugar content on the label, which they're mandated to show. But that's oftentimes not what you're actually consuming because by the time you consume it, that sugar 
is basically broken down completely or almost right. broken down and completely. Yeah, the bacteria uses the sugar and that's what creates the effervescence, if you will, <laughs> or that natural carbonation, right? Uh, and so I, I say that, you know, generally speaking, like a good quality kombucha should only be about eight grams of total carbs per cup. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that would be on the label amount, right? Um, and I, I, I've not found, even with clients that wear continuous glucose monitors, myself testing my blood sugar and ketone any impact from consuming that level, uh, you know, unless it was chugged like dr- like dramatically super rapid intake. Um, and it would really have to be a higher carb amount, I think, to have a, a dynamic blood sugar impact. But with that being said, I still recommend that clients, if they're doing kombucha and they're new to keto and they maybe haven't fully established that metabolic flexibility, you know, maybe their body's like, okay, I kind of get what ketones are, but I'm still a glucose burner primarily. Well, those individuals, I really recommend that they keep the kombucha limited to like a half bottle and they keep it at a meal time where their composition in general is going to be still very fat dominant and protein dominant. Yeah. And you got to be careful because there's a bunch of kombucha companies that are just playing on that kombucha name. And it's basically just sugared water with a kombucha flavoring agent in there, which is not the, the real deal totally. at all. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that kind of segues us into phase 1.5, right? What, what does that look like? Like take me through a hypothetical if I'm going through these phases, what kind of manipulations are we making? Yeah. So, you know, with a phase one, just to kind of dumb it down, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, I keep people focused on, you know, two to three cups of leafy greens and only a half cup of non-starchy vegetables a day because those residual carbs do add up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if people don't want to have to use a tracker, that's just an easy concept. So phase 1.5 liberalizes non-starchy vegetables to your metabolic flexibility is a term I keep throwing around. And basically what that means is what you're able to consume in a total carbohydrate amount based on your lean body mass, because your muscle tissue utilizes glucose, right? So based on your lean body mass, based on your activity factor, based on your body fat mass and your metabolic handicap, like how insulin resistant were you when you started this whole program? So that's where everyone's going to be very biochemically unique. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is even when we're super tight, like carnivore, zero carb approach of diet, our glucose never zeroes out. You know, I feel like people sometimes don't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would die if you zeroed out on your glucose. <laughs> so your glucose levels regulate and they no longer create mountain valleys and, and peaks. And, you know, when you go low glycemic, you create more of a speed bump effect. When you go keto, you create more of like just a flat line at a low regulated level and insulin levels come dynamically down. And that's what allows us to access body fat as fuel and, you know, make all of the awesome magic that ketones provide us. So the idea of one Point five is that, you know, for me, for instance, I like to have like a, a, a salad for lunch, especially if it's a mellow day, and I might add like a half cup of cherry tomatoes on that. I might also choose to have some leftover roasted broccoli from the night before on that with my uh, broiled salmon. And then that evening, I might decide to have prosciutto wrapped asparagus and maybe even some Brussels with bacon. And so I might take in two cups of non-starchy vegetables in that day, and that works for me. I'm someone who really enjoys eating vegetables and doesn't have any negative health impact from them. In fact, I I see gains in my body. And um, it just breaks that doctrine of needing to stay within this macro category. Yeah, I totally can get behind that. I feel, 
you know, like I'll, I'll really closely watch my total carbohydrate intake coming from vegetables if I'm having a specific, you know, compositional goal that I'm trying to obtain within a set period of time simply because it just removes some of the variability and I'm able to just track things more accurately. But as far as just like a, a lifestyle and a sustainability factor, I love, you know, homegrown veggies cooked the right way you know, with a big plate of meat and, you know, butter just as much as the next person. So I never want to <laughs> villainize, you know, good quality greens by any means. Um, but you're, just to clarify here, you're basically having that, uh, you know, whatever that threshold for the individual is, which may be, you know, 30 grams or 50 grams of total carbs. That's basically done throughout the course of the entire day, as opposed to having like a 50 gram, you know, high glycemic index carb intake at any one point, correct? Correct. This is throughout the day and um, it may incorporate, I love kind of pushing the button on like a yes, no keto list. Um, and so it may incorporate a dun, 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 non-keto food all in that synergy. So for instance, uh, with that Brussels bacon, I may have on my plate two tablespoons, again, dun, 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 <laughs> of butternut squash, right? Or something like that. And um, for many people, they'd be like, well, that's not keto. And I'll look at you and I'll look at my blood ketones and I'm like, well, I'm in ketosis. Um, so I don't, I think that we're breaking that doctrine again of these rules and it works well, I think as a mother in a household where it's more about thinking of these macros as levers, right? And we can adjust them based on our personal goals, based on our needs. And it creates a lot of flexibility in the household because then I can serve my daughter a larger scoop of that or a smaller scoop. And it's just kind of like we're getting these whole real foods in seasonal local application that, um, you know, we can get that sustainability approach and still the variability to make this a long-term commitment. Yeah, I totally get that. I personally don't have like the squash because I would just prefer to have more of the asparagus, <laughs> but it's yeah. kind of like whatever your preference is really. Um, right. But so with regard to, because I just want to dive deep into carb ups here because that's kind of where everybody's yeah. interest is right <laughs> now. So let's just, you know, rip that bandaid off. But sure. from a you know, a lifestyle sustainability standpoint, I can totally get behind and respect an individual that is wanting to have more variety. Like if that's what they want and they're feeling and performing great, their blood sugars, you know, equalized and there's no issues, more power to them. But have you found that there's any inherent, uh, you know, performance benefit per se from going out of your way to incorporate more of these higher glycemic index foods like, is that something that's necessary from a hormonal standpoint from, um, you know, females oftentimes think that they have to incorporate more of these high starchy, um, like, I feel like a lot of females have this idea that they're supposed to have, you know, sugary, high starchy foods to help regulate their hormones, whereas oftentimes they're able to do that with minimal uh, carbohydrate intake or just simply from intaking some greens, which is oftentimes attributed to just probably getting more calories in overall because they're oftentimes drenching those greens with butter or bacon grease or just something ah. like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally, totally. Yes. So it all comes down, honestly, in, in my approach to the hormone leptin. 
So uh, let me just unpack maybe a little bit about what leptin is and how that functions in the body. And then I can connect the insulin, leptin, glucose thing. Yeah. Um, so, so leptin is a hormone and in the Greek word translates to the word thin, right? And leptin plays a huge role with our satiety or our feeling of satisfaction. And leptin, when optimized in the body, tells the body that it's safe to burn calories. So we have leptin receptors primarily on our hypothalamus. That's the part of the brain that regulates our homeostasis. So like body temperature, circadian rhythm, sleep cycles, all these things, our metabolism because the hypothalamus also makes our thyroid releasing hormone. Um, so leptin docks there. It also docks to our thyroid. And there's also pretty significant docks of leptin on ovaries for women. So the concept here, we make leptin in presence of consumption of fat, okay? Um, and so if you're eating a ample calorie, and I say that, you know, meaning you're eating enough fat with keto, um, you should be optimizing your leptin. And leptin is made by the small intestine getting that fat from the diet, right? And that creates a signal and then the leptin is produced or leptin can be produced from body fat loss. So anytime you're circulating fat, you're gonna upregulate your leptin. So what can happen over time, if you're someone like myself who is super high type A and um, wearing many hats and writing a book, running a clinic, having a three-year-old, blah, 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 um, is that I often undereat. And not intentionally because I'm doing, you know, a 24-hour fast or something like that. It's because life. Like I, I carry my F-bomb packs. I try my darndest. But sometimes I just straight up under eat. Mm -hmm. And I'm also an individual that has um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I have that going on in my thyroid. I under eat the fat. And, um, you know, I've also had a history of, of hormone imbalance and whatnot. I find personally that I believe, yes, one option would be me to be very tight on my fat intake and never go low calorie. But I don't think that that's ever going to fit Allie's story. And that's just me, right? There's women out there who could say, yes, I can commit to always eating enough fat. I'm never going to dip low leptin. But I'm a type of an individual that dips low leptin. And what happens if I dip low leptin is that my cycle shortens and I become what's called anovulatory, meaning that I don't ovulate during that menstrual cycle. And as a 35-year-old female, I still want to be ovulating, like regardless of my family planning, that's important for me as a cardinal sign of health and balance in my body. And so that's something that I like to track. Um, and so I have found that my leptin levels, because I test leptin in the blood in my clinic, um, whenever leptin docks clinically low, meaning like under eight, this is where the individual needs to either go into like a refeeding program, which could still maintain tight keto and doesn't necessitate carbs, or they need to consider carb ups post ovulation. And the reason why carb ups can work in this setting is that leptin is also insulinogenic. So what that means is if you run on low insulin levels, like I like insulin levels also, number eight again, less than eight, um, you know, the normal range goes upwards of high 20s, but I like insulin levels in clients less than eight. Well, it, my insulin runs at a two, 
right? So I run, and I'm a, I'm a very low percent body fat. So I'm I'm running low insulin. I also run low leptin because I do under eat unintentionally. Um, and so I find that by getting a glucose spike at like day 19 of my cycle, that that kick out of ketosis does create a spike of insulin that does create a spike of leptin. And when I carb cycle, I find that that regulates my menstrual cycle to 28 days and I ovulate. Gotcha. That makes sense. I did not know that. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's me. And again, and I say that too, like the same thing we were saying in the beginning, Robert, I don't blind, blindly say every woman needs to carb up because every woman isn't me. Um, every woman needs to feed and fuel their body yeah. <laughs> and every woman's body needs to feel safe. Um, and you figure out how that works best for your body. Totally agree. I feel like just in what I've observed, um, just from the people that I've worked with, observing the keto space and honestly just the health and fitness space as a whole, there is a, uh, a a trend. I mean, you look at you look at the obesity rate, and it's it's easier to assume that people overeat on average, and that's oftentimes very much so the case. But you look at people that are really trying to change their composition, and oftentimes you see that they're chronically undereating. And yes. I'm kind of staking my flag in the ground and say, like, that's what I want to fight because there's so many issues that occur as a result of malnutrition from just simply under eating. And like metabolisms get wrecked pretty easily, actually. And it's just sad to see people work so hard and then just not have the right input to make a change happen. So I would argue that, you know, I, I think you'd probably agree with this. Even if you can regulate your hormones and your, your cycle, with that uh, momentary increase in carbs, the longer term picture may be to try and make sure you're not chronically under eating as a way to ensure that your cycle is more regular. Totally, or chronically stressed, or chronically undersleeping and overcaffeinating and mm -hmm. overexercising, <laughs> like all of the things that I do. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, type A. I feel like you and I are both pretty type A, and it's funny because <laughs> I've been totally diving down the rabbit hole on sleep. And I've, I've yes. been like tweaking all these different minute things. What what are you finding works really well for you as far as like just activating more of the parasympathetic, getting better sleep and actually just having a true recovery moment? So I think coming down to sleep hygiene, like this is a random phrase, but our sleep, we're such creatures of ritual and habit, right? And just like children, you know, you have like the routine of like, um, you know, we, for instance, with Stella, we have a trampoline that we have her jump onto music because mm -hmm. it's like, get your sillies out. So she does her trampoline jump in after dinner and rest time. And then, you know, it's read three books, you know, you brush your teeth, you do your thing, you read your three books, you do your deal, and then you go to sleep. Well, we need to do the same type of thing. And we don't want to incorporate blue light in the activity, meaning screen time, whether it's TV, computer, tablet, uh, phones, within at least an hour, ideally two hours before bed and establishing some rituals that get the body into, again, that parasympathetic rest, digest, reproduce, metabolize, all of that goes on in that safe place of, of rest mode. And so I like to incorporate things like foam rolling or stretching, um, using, especially for women, maybe not men, men could, but using like a body oil that feels good, just kind of connecting your own body even with touch. Um, getting into a space of kind of intimacy and slowdown is really beneficial for the body to say, okay, this is the time. Keeping, keeping the lighting dim 
and practicing breath is super important. I use a four, seven, eight breath that I pulled from Dr. Andrew Weil, and I talk about it in the book. And it's been shown in research study after study to really harness the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is that primary nerve that regulates our autonomic nervous system. It goes from the brain stem down to our colon. And four, seven, eight looks like in through your nose for four, holding for seven and exhaling for a count of eight with like a whooshing, like a whoosh. And that, that two to one exhale, two to one exhale to inhale, really kind of envisioning like pressing the air out of an inner tube, if you will, it puts the body into this deep restful place. It can start to silence the racing mind, which in nighttime, often what happens in individuals is we burn through our neurotransmitters from our stressful day. So we arrive, you know, lower serotonin, lower dopamine. And that's why a lot of us in the evening create an unhealthy ritual of, you know, opening the pantry door or the refrigerator right when we walk in the door, because we're anxious and we're not in that bliss reward activity of dopamine. We feel burned out and we're looking for that pickup and that food coma. And so you can get in those places by harnessing breath work and favorable ritual. And I, I use the word safe a couple of times, but I think it's a really powerful word. Like we all as human beings, if you think of fight or flight as a survival mechanism, we all at this time of this, you know, rapid fire movement of industrialized society, we all are craving to feel safe and grounded and mellow. Do you use any kind of apps for meditation or anything, or do you just do it all based off of that four, seven, eight breath count? Just the four, seven, eight. Um, every now and then I'll, I'll listen to a couple songs that resonate with me. Um, but no, I just kind of do a stretching movement and uh, I, I just watch my breath. I think the, because I, I have an aura ring. I don't know. Do you have an aura ring? I don't. I don't. I have one. It's been interesting to see kind of how patterns pop up. But I was, I, I just returned from like a two week um, backpacking trip. I was at hunting in Washington state and I was away from technology. There was no internet signal. My phone died after like the second day. And I was literally just out in the middle of nowhere with no distractions. And I was, you know, expending a lot of energy hiking up and down these mountains looking for these mule deer. But I would track my sleep. And I mean, I, I've got like a nice mattress here. I've got a weighted blanket. I've got a thermostat. Like I've got all the creature comforts of home here at the compound. <laughs> but when I was out there, I had none of that. But my sleep quality was exponentially better out there sleeping on the side of a mountain with rocks underneath me than oh, I ever get yeah. here. And I think so much that has to do with the fact that my frame of mind prior to actually falling asleep and then just throughout the day and while I slept was just in so much more of a parasympathetic at peace state that the sleep quality was exponentially better. Oh, I, I would totally see that. And just being in that kind of more primal focus, right? You probably weren't thinking about business. You weren't thinking about orders. You're, you're thinking about the kill. You know, you're thinking about the beast. You're thinking in that more primal limbic system of the brain um, versus all the heady buzz stuff <laughs> that we all thrive on yeah. or I guess need or are constantly over over indebted with or burdened with on a day-to-day -day function. Totally. What do you think about um, like a glass of wine, for instance, or I know CBD, um, even THC. I mean, a lot of people are leveraging these outside, uh, you know, elements 
to kind of reach that at peace or just parasympathetic state? Do you feel like that is advantageous or what's your take on that? I think everything has a an add-on to it, right? And I think as close as we can get to, again, a more ancestral, natural approach, the best, and that usually means less is more. But then there's also things like pleasure and community and mental expansion and, you know, ceremonial celebratory things. So if we're talking about like grounding, for instance, it's like, dude, yeah, you could go by a grounding pad or you could put your feet on the ground, <laughs> you know, like, let's see what I think, you know, and I, I just think as close as we can get to the thing. So I think removing the stimulants always is going to be a more powerful impact than trying to mitigate the impact of the stimulants. But based on our lifestyle and what we have to take on as our burden or as our selection, we want tools to help to mitigate as well. So what I mean by that is like, Yes, goal is turn off your computer screen. Um, if I have a book deadline, I'm going to wear, be wearing blue blockers while I'm on my computer screen, at least to mitigate that blue light because I cannot do away with it based on my commitments to a deadline. Um, same thing of kind of our, our day-to-day, what we take on, the burdens that we wear, whether we're dealing with emotional stress or whatnot. Sometimes I believe that it's important to get the body into a parasympathetic state, honestly, using whatever it takes is my answer. Um, is that sustainable? No, but that's where supplements are great tools. And so I really like as first line um, players to look at things like magnesium bisglycinate. I like to look at things because magnesium actually gives signals to the pituitary to downregulate the stimulation of the adrenal glands to put out cortisol. So there's an actual impact that magnesium blocks cortisol production in the magnesium bisglycinate way. So this is like my relax and regulate, not the cheapo calm stuff that you get at the grocery store. Um, but magnesium bisglycinate does directly cross the blood brain barrier and actually give signals to the stress access. It also has neuromuscular relaxation in the body. So like the tension we hold in the jaw and the shoulders and the neck. And we have to look at a supplement such as that. A supplement supplements our lifestyle, right? So if I am sitting on a beach and not high stress mode type A, I probably don't need to take a scoop of that at bed. But my current lifestyle mandates that I do so that I don't just get all torn up and you know deal with high blood pressure and the other drama that I take on from being a healthcare practitioner. Um, and so, you know, you can look at that with any of those things. I find a place for wine. It's been, you know, consumed for thousands of years. Um, I find that it fits well within my lifestyle and I am mindful about amounts of consumption. I cycle it out so that it's not a daily ritual, but it's something that I find as a really great way to connect with my husband at the end of the day. And, um, you know, it's, it's a nice piece of our ceremonial connection and, and community. Um, and it, it pairs well with food. You know, it's a pleasure as well. Yeah. Um, and then CBD and, and THC, I mean, the the thing with that is, I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, right? You know, we have, we have an endocannabinoid system. We're primed to respond to cannabis and we make endocannabinoids, meaning um, our body produces like amandamide. Um, amandamide is actually produced in higher amounts when we consume red meat. That's why we all feel so awesome. <laughs> you know, like when you eat like a good old fatty ribeye, you do get, it's not a food coma. It's not bloating or distension. It's not a distress, but the brain feels good. Like there's a definite chill response from red meat and that's amandamide. And amandamide is a cannabinoid. 
and we produce that. You know, um, we're hardwired to have CB1 and CB2 receptors. The caveat is that CBD, cannabidiol, um, is non-psychoactive, and that targets both CB1 and CB2 receptors, whereas THC only targets CB1. And so there's a little bit of imbalance that can occur where THC tends to create more dopamine effect. This is where we can be seeing like, you know, the like classic stoner thing of like the munchies or like just staring at something. It's like yeah. dopamine overload, right? <laughs> of, of like not being able to think fast and just kind of feeling like I, I've referenced food coma before. It's kind of like that impact, right? Um, whereas CBD more has an influence on our GABA. And GABA, again, is more of a neuroinhibitory mellower outer in the brain and does not necessitate that cognitive impairment that we can see with excessive dopamine. And when dopamine gets high for certain people with certain genetic profiles, a lot of times they'll also get this like hypervigilance or this worry. And that's like the classic paranoia, right? Um, and Again, that only occurs with C with THC, excuse me, not CBD. Is there any, this is, a, I'm not really well versed on uh, the cannabinoid system at all. I know that CBD and THC are kind of like the hot new thing right now that everybody's talking about. Um, is there any difference between like, like a CBD isolate versus the full spectrum CBDs that do contain like a trace amount of THC because supposedly the receptors, like you want to have that full spectrum uh, going into those receptors. Is there any truth to that? I believe so. Yes. And I honestly believe always nature knows. So the closest we can get to a whole food or a whole plant compound, we're likely going to gain more benefit. Uh, so the full spectrum products out there will have very trace amounts that should not have that imbalance and in the ratios of even a 20 to one. Um, but most of the, you know, nationally legal stuff is going to be 0.3%, um, which is super low. And then you talk about like, you know, weed dispensaries, they're getting like 80%, you know, so that's a very big difference, 80% yeah. THC to 0.3%. Um, and it's just a different world. Yeah, I've, I've had several companies send me CBD products. And I've honestly not been able to feel a difference with any of them. But I'm probably like, expecting more than I should realistically expect. Of course, I'm pretty well dialed in with my nutrition, too. I feel like if I was Right. Less optimized, I'd probably be able to notice more of a, an impact, but I don't really feel anything unless I'm just doing something totally wrong or unless the dosage I see, is supposed to be higher. I don't know. Totally. that I see that all the time. Um, you know, I really find an effective dosage at 30 to 50 milligrams and a lot of products out there. It's very tricky. It's still a cowboy industry, you know, and um, a lot of the dosages are by bottle and people don't understand that. So you'll get like a 500 milligram or a thousand milligram bottle, and it might be a one ounce bottle, right? So an ML or a dropper full of that bottle, same size dropper is going to be in the thousand milligram bottle around 33 milligrams, but in a 500 milligram bottle only, you know, 16 milligrams. So it, it's, I think for the consumer, very confusing and it's an area to navigate where I see really promising clinical outcomes is in autoimmune disease. I, I will see, say that I've seen a lot of inflammatory conditions like multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis with a lot of favorable where those clients notice a significant influence from the anti-inflammatory impact. Um, and so I think it's powerful medicine that we're just starting to, to really get to that tip of the iceberg about. And um, I'm interested to see kind of how things evolve. And again, the big thing is getting closest to what's whole 
Um, and understanding that, you know, if we're hardwired for this system and our body produces some of these things, that there, there likely is some benefit. Um, but again, the need is based on the individual. So you just may not need that supplement, if you will, to your lifestyle based on the other influences of your lifestyle. Yeah, totally. I feel like a lot of people look to it as a, as a, just an easy out to kind of escape reality, so to speak. But I don't want to badmouth them by any means because I do feel like there's definitely people that could benefit from it. It's just like anything else, though. Like it's with the nutrition, any other supplements you use, you have to be strategic in how you use it and just not go overboard with anything. Absolutely. It's like it's like with diet and everything, right? It all kind of comes back to whether we're talking like allostatic load, right? Which basically means how our body is resilient to the stressors that we take on. Any health supporting behavior, whether we're talking infrared sauna, weightlifting, fasting, keto, whatnot, can be taken to an extreme if done and to a level where you're not listening to the feedback of your body. You know, so I always joke like, yeah, you could get awesome outcomes. If, if you think of just the concept of like, yeah, lifting a weight. If you were held at gunpoint, you had to lift a weight for 36 hours straight, you're going to have such severe atrophy and damage to the body that it's not going to gain muscle mass, right? And so it's like anything in the body has this capacity and we need to keep pulsing and evolving and shifting and understanding how to modify, whether it's diet or lifestyle, based on the selected stressor that we enjoy and um, be mindful about really trying to find foundational tools versus these symptom managers. Totally agree. Totally agree. I feel like I've totally deviated from your... Uh... Your phases, though. <laughs> so what, what is after 1.5? Kind of dive into that. So that's where phase two would go. Uh, and, and that's like a low glycemic diet, right? So this is for people that, you know, the ketogenic diet didn't work for. And I would never go above a phase two in any recommendation. This may look like a total of like for a woman of my stature, like 90 total grams of carbs a day. Um, again, that still is not very high carb compared to the normal American consumption. Um, and that's distributed throughout the day, not at a meal. Um, and that's what it might look like for a carb up if a female is doing that, um, but still selecting more anti-inflammatory approaches. So they may incorporate like maybe a couple dates chopped up with some berries in their yogurt um, or, you know, adding on with whole food starches and fruits and, and um, sources that are going to get them to that level. And is that... Phase two, mostly for just um, like a sustainability standpoint, like people just, you know, die hard, want to have these foods in their life. That's what they're going to do. That's the healthiest way to go about doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's just giving them at least an upper limit versus saying, well, but didn't work. Better luck next time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's saying, okay, if this doesn't work for you, here's a pivot of something to consider. And at least this provides you, you know, the lowered, you're not going to go into hyperinsulinemia. You're not going to, like I always ensure that no one eats what I call naked carbs. Like if you're going to have an apple, it should be paired with almond butter. Now, if you're going to have an apple, it's not going to exist in phase one. In phase 1.5, you may be able to chop up a third of an apple into your salad and that may provide you this like amazing flexibility that makes you love your life again if you've been feeling burned out. Um, and you might not need to add that. And then in phase two, you might have a whole apple and add in some macadamia nut butter and dip it in there. Um, and again, phase two might be for a toddler. Phase two might be for someone that is dealing with such severe adrenal fatigue that we're working with DHEA and they're not able to produce ketones. So they're feeling chronically fatigued with carb restriction. So as we're rebounding their adrenals, they need a little bit more flexibility until we can kind of shave that down and get them into that optimized mode. 
What are some some good benchmark tests that you would recommend if people want to just kind of see, you know, what what their blood levels were with a certain marker? What are some of your go to benchmark tests? As far as like uh, what good what carb restriction candidate they'd have, or yeah, yeah, kind just of like, in general well, health. Well, kind of as far as it relates to these like this phase, like the uh, like these different phases yeah. where they would find themselves optimal. You were talking earlier about uh, you know insulin being below an eight, I think you said. And yes. what was the other mm-hmm. other measure there below eight? So I like fasting leptin. insulin. Leptin. I like to look at uh, leptin. Yes. So leptin, you don't want to drop below eight. Um, and often when people have insulin resistance, they also have leptin resistance. So leptin levels can be in the hundreds. And that's where people aren't getting that satiety signaling. There's a sweet spot of leptin and you want to be in the optimal range. If you're too high, you're not going to be getting the signaling feedback. And if you're too low, you're going to start to deal with like insomnia, hypothyroid, and kind of more of that like starvation stress response. Um, and so leptin, there, there's a sweet range of staying between like 8 to 20 and if someone's above that um, in the high level, what I do is I put them on a more um, prolonged intermittent fast so that they're, again, that's the best way to drop that insulin. That's the best way to get that leptin back in range as well. Gotcha. What do you, is it, is it pretty simple to get a leptin test? I've never gotten one, but I've been, I'm actually really curious to get one, especially as I get deeper into my next competition prep. I feel like knowing kind of how my hunger signaling hormones are being affected by my caloric manipulations would be really worthwhile insight. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, you know, you can order leptin through like LabCorp and Quest, which are like the two big wigs of your your main labs in the country. Um, I run a panel called the Cardiometabolic Panel, and that includes leptin as well as fasting insulin. It also layers on other labs that I like to look at, which includes C-reactive protein. You know, that's a marker of your inflammation within the body. I also like to look at, um, I see cholesterol as a beneficial compound, but I still like to look at composition and, you know, the blends within the level of HDL and the lipoprotein particle size. I like to look at homocysteine, which is a marker of vascular inflammation. Um, and also how the body methylates. So the cardiometabolic panel includes all that and then like a hemoglobin A1C, which is the three-month average of our blood sugar levels. And um, that gives me a big snapshot of the individual's metabolism. Gotcha. Do you have any idea kind of, this would be really hard to quantify for a, a group of people, but do you kind of have a general guideline on what you like to see specifically females consuming from like a caloric standpoint, like what a healthy range is, so to speak? Oh, I just think it so depends on output and where the individual is at as far as demand. So I think of demand as like, of course, what is our exercise output or our activity factor? So based on, you know, is your work something that like a a nurse that's on her feet all day or or depending on the type of nurse, they might be sitting all day at their station. It kind of depends. So what is your activity factor is going to be huge? What is your body composition? So if you're coming in at 18% body fat as a female, you know, you're going to want to maintain a quality feed mode versus a restrictive mode. Um, And then we're looking at also the timestamp of our hormones and our hormone changes in the body. And um, of course, if fertility is a goal, Uh, that's really one of the biggest drivers of what we call hypothalamic amenorrhea or when a woman loses her period is over calorie restriction. Um, And I find that actually using a ketogenic diet with high fat 
is the most therapeutic way to rebound that woman's hormone because we need fat to make hormone. Um, it's just making sure that that individual eats enough. So, I mean, it can range anywhere from like 1400 to 2600, I would say. And that's quite broad, right? Um, but it's just, and that's just kind of off the cuff. I mean, someone could be higher, of course, if they're doing like a triathlon or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, that's kind of going to be a good range. You don't see too many people that are in optimal health that are less than. 1300,000 calories or so. Right. I mean, I know from myself, from a couple audits and where, where I fall that it, I can easily eat only 800 calories in a day. And it's, again, it's not because I'm white knuckling. It's because I'm like, do, 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 run, 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 run. And I'm running on ketones. So I don't experience hunger. Like I have to, I have to tell myself to stop and eat. And, um, you know, thank God for my husband, cause he'll like bring up a matcha with full fat coconut milk and collagen. And I get, I get fed, um, and I'm just someone that's kind of always in this healer output mode that I don't take the time. I'm working on this, but I don't always take the time to ask myself what I need, um, you know, and to really take that time to prioritize where I very easily can do a 16, eight, I'll put maybe 200 calories of fat in my, in my coffee in the morning. And, um, you know, I can eat an 850 or 900 calorie dinner, um, but that's pretty much all I can take in in one meal. So I need to make sure I get that second meal and otherwise I'm going to dip pretty low. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of coffee, what, what does your take on caffeine? Like, do you have a certain kind of ceiling you try and cap yourself at? Or is there like, uh, like from a hormonal oh, yeah. standpoint <laughs> and adrenal standpoint, how have you noticed caffeine manipulation affecting your performance? So, you know, caffeine's tricky because we it's been used so long, especially for like an exercise and a metabolic tool as an appetite stimulant and also performance enhancer. Uh, and so we all have, and then there's kind of, I think that it's a pleasure food for a lot of people as well, a, a ritual pleasure food, right? Like it's like what starts your day. It's this setting, it's a pacer. Um, but I try to keep coffee, personally, I limit it to eight ounces. I do one cup a day. Um, and I try to keep all clients under 16 ounces um, because caffeine, especially in the form of like coffee, it does drive epinephrine from the adrenals, which is our adrenaline. And that can create like this agitation, anxiety, shakiness. Um, it's a stimulant, of course. And so then that drives us more sympathetic instead of that grounded parasympathetic. So I try to get people to limit that caffeine and do it within the first two hours of the day. And then if we need an afternoon pick-me-up to go for a beverage that has adaptogens, or if we choose to have caffeine to do it in the form of tea, because tea, especially matcha, is going to have the L-theanine in there. And L-theanine is going to work as a modulator for our brain chemicals. And it upregulates our alpha brainwave patterns. And that's what helps us to have this concentration, focus, still allow creativity, but not getting into that agitation, anxiety, or interfere with sleep. In fact, you can take L-theanine in the evening to get deeper into your REM cycles of sleep. So, you know, that would be kind of a therapeutic swap out in the afternoon. I, I definitely would try to cut your coffee off by, by 12 p.m. I need to uh, be taking notes because I drink way too much caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's good, though. I feel like a lot of people... We all have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if that's my one vice, you know, I feel like there's definitely worse things out there. But it's not a good way to go about things by any means because I can tell, and I feel like most people listening could attest to this, but if you start over-consuming caffeine... It's like you just start getting more tired. Like when you start getting more tired as you consume caffeine, you've definitely yes. hit the point of no return. You just need to start, you know, titrating that down and kind of weaning off of it basically. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like everything, right. There's that pendulum swing yeah. <laughs> we on find that sweet spot and, and it's going to evolve, you know, um, again, based on our demands, based on our, our day. hundred percent. Was there anything else as far as the, the, the cookbook you have coming out? I'm, I'm excited because I, I don't feel just based off of what we've talked about thus far. I don't feel like this is going to be like any other cookbook and there's a whole bunch of cookbooks out there, but this is more like the nuts and bolts and practicality of like, how do you use these tools to make a difference? Yes. So it's really, again, the like application of the science and strategy of the anti-anxiety diet. And I empower you with the why of the foods as well as just giving you the recipes that taste delicious, by the way. Um, but I have uh, areas in there, like for instance, bone, bone broth five ways. So, you know, instead of just saying have a cup of bone broth, you know, eight to 12 ounces, I will tell you what the bone broth does in your body. I give you three different recipes for bone broth as a base, but then I give you all these synergies of if you don't feel like sipping hot meat juice, which a lot of people don't, especially in Austin, Texas, where it's like three digits still, you know, you can do the turmeric lime broth where, I don't know, did you try that, Robert, at the uh, party? Yeah, that was the, the bomb. Lime. I was going back multiple times. I had like, I think three or four glasses. Yeah. So, so you guys can look forward to that. So my table has, you know, five different combinations. The turmeric lime bone broth uses the juice of half of a lime, a teaspoon of dried turmeric and three tablespoons of coconut oil. And you whip that into, and then a, a good coarse uh, salt pinch on top after it's blended up with cilantro. Um, and so really neat ways to create these synergies, not only of flavors, but then the reader gets to understand, oh, and when I add turmeric, that reduces inflammation in my body. And when I add that lime, that boosts vitamin C and vitamin C is highest stored in those adrenal glands, which are those main stress responders for my body. So this is how I'm using food as medicine to thrive. So I really am so stoked because I've put a lot of energy and effort into making this next level so that no matter what level of your health journey you're at, this will definitely elevate and give you food for thought of different strategies and things that you can pulse and play with. So I have a lot of downloadable materials as a complement to the book where you can do things like a probiotic challenge. You can understand the status of your microbiome um, and you can really start to nail down some techniques and strategies to keep you in that optimized thrive mode. It's to show you how to make different uh, fermented foods and yogurts and stuff like that. Yeah. And I actually go into nerdy way, like the types of cultures that are varied in the different forms of probiotic rich foods and, you know, how you might consider synergizing or blending those. And then the influence of the particular strains. So, you know, for instance, kombucha has generally speaking more antifungal support because of the presence of the Saccharomyces strain in there. Whereas the kimchi or sauerkraut are going to have more of the antimicrobial and antioxidant benefits. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm, I'm excited about this because those foods are, are key, but if you go and buy those foods, they're, they're marked up. They're incredibly expensive relative to most other foods in the grocery store. So I'm just going to go full-fledged in and start making all this in-house. And I'm going to yeah, use, yeah. <laughs> using your recipes to do so. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, Allie, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and get the book? I try it. Yeah, I try to keep it super simple. Um, you know, everything's at Allie Miller RD. So, you know, that's my social media handle at Allie Miller RD on all the places. And then the website's AllieMillerRD.com. 
And you can get the book there. That would be awesome. But you can also get it anywhere books are sold. So it's at Barnes and Noble and you know Amazon and hopefully your local bookstore. So great place to uh, vote with your dollar and tell your local stores that they need to bring food as medicine into their location so that we can really make this a movement. Awesome. Well, I will certainly spread the word and keep killing it. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. You're putting a lot of good information out there. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you. 